The sermon text this morning comes from Ecclesiastes 8, 14 through 16, and chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever have they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your life, vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For a man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This is the reading of the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of this word. Sarah. So God saved me at the end of my sophomore year in high school. Really got a hold of my life, transformed my life. And uh, even before I became a Christian, growing up out in the country and um, summer camp was always 
one of the highlights of my summer. So God saves me into my sophomore year, and I go to summer camp, church camp, that year for the first time as a believer. And there was a guy there, a college student, his name was Brian Shelton. Brian was a part of a group camp team, a group of college students who, that's all they did all summer long, was youth camp and children's camps for Baptist associations and churches. And I, I remember that summer, Brian was in charge of uh, the games, all of the competitions that happened. And, and my, my team, I mean, we, we were competitive, my group at camp that year, and uh, it, it just always seemed like there was, there was a point that wasn't counted, or there was a play that was missed, or there was something, and, and my team always wound up like second place. And, and I just gave, I mean, I gave Brian grief that, that whole week long, like, dude, come on, like, what are you doing? And, um, and I saw so I'm a new Christian, and, and this, is, this is how I really knew that God had saved me, because I would get bothered about things that I had done, and I would feel like I needed to go apologize to people, and that was a brand new development. That had never really been a thing in my life before, and so I remember, like, the next to last day of camp, uh, telling Brian, I just felt like, you know, I've kind of been a jerk to this guy. Uh, and so I remember going up to him and telling him one afternoon, hey, Brian, uh, <coughs> you're volunteering, and, and I know that you, you, know, you got a lot to take care of. And I, I've, just, I've, I've just kind of been a jerk. And, uh, you know, with, with some of the game stuff and the way I've responded. And, and I, I'm, I'm sorry, man. And I, I apologize for that and I hope you'll forgive me. So that's Thursday, like afternoon, Thursday night. There's always a campfire service, like a time of sharing. And, and I remember Brian got up and he said, like, this is week seven uh, of camps for us. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of getting worn down. I'm kind of getting tired. And I'm just going to be honest. Uh, like, I, I, I was really hating doing games all week long. And I was just like, man, I am, I'm ready for the summer to be over, and I'm ready for camps to be like, I'm done doing this. And, uh, <clears throat> and I, in response to things that had happened, had a really sinful attitude. And, uh, and today, Sam Byers came up, and he apologized. And, man, that just did something huge for me, and then it helped me to be able to repent, and I just, you know, uh, and so like he did this like repentance in front of all of us there, and I just thought, man, this, this, like, God made me feel bad about what I did, and then I talked to a guy, and then God used that in this guy's life, and like, and I only had to tell one guy, and this guy told the whole camp, and like, wow, I was just, as a new believer, the whole thing was very impressionable uh, on me, so that fall, I go back to school, start my junior year, and Brian attends the college that's, that's near where I live. And, and Brian is a Bible major, and he's training for ministry. And Brian led, he, he led a, uh, an event on Wednesday nights for college students. It was called the acronym BASH, Being Active Servants for Him. And it was basically like, it was like a, a worship service. And, uh, and 
there was nothing really like this. I mean, like our, our church sang three hymns and had a piano and an organ and like this service, they had drums and guitars and that was like revolutionary and rural Baptist life, at least in, in that time. And so I just remember going to this service that Brian would lead and there'd be all these college students and I was just a high schooler and this was, it was just, a, it was like an oasis of my soul, for my soul. It was just it was a godsend, and it was really encouraging. And then I would invite other students from my school, and they'd never experienced anything like that. And so I saw God working in the lives of other students from my school through this event that Brian led. And so I've got this summer camp experience with Brian, and now I've got this, this weekly Wednesday night experience with Brian and I, I just, I mean, I really, I really thought a lot of Brian Shelton. And then that next summer, I remember one day mowing the yard. We had a big yard on the riding lawnmower. And my brother rolls in, kind of driving fast, rolls in and gets out of his truck. And he like walks out to where I am in the middle of the yard. So I turn off the mower. I'm like, what's up? And he's like, I just heard Brian Shelton die. I'm like, what? And he said, yeah, he was, he was on his way home. And a cement truck like flipped, lost control and flipped and smashed his car and killed him. And I just remember sitting on the lawnmower in my front yard and I'm like, this doesn't seem right. Like, here's a guy who's 23, 24 years old. He's engaged to be married. He was supposed to get married that summer. He was preparing to be a pastor. Uh, he's all around good dude. Here's a guy who was devoting his time to investing in the spiritual lives of teenagers and children and college students and then just like that his life was over and it wasn't like Brian died rescuing a hundred people from a burning building and it wasn't like Brian died on in the frontier of some some uh, jungle because he was sharing Jesus with unreached peoples was Brian died because a cement truck flipped over on his car and smashed it. And it just seemed meaningless. And here's, here's what else is crazy about that. In the same world where a guy who is seemingly devoting his life to telling other people about God and he dies like that without any rhyme or reason right in the, in the prime of his life, you might say, there are people who live their entire lives in opposition to God, focusing their lives entirely on themselves, leaving a trail of broken lives in their wake, and yet they wind up living lives full of days and long and years. And when you view life through that that dual reality, it would be understandable for someone to respond by saying something like, 
Life's not fair. It's all a matter of chance. Can't figure it out. We're all going to die. There's nothing you can do about it, so you might as well just enjoy your life while you can. And as a matter of fact, those phrases sound very similar to what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying in the passage that we heard read this morning. And our passage has a certain fatalistic undertone to it. But the author would probably respond by saying, I'm not being a pessimist, I'm being a realist. I'm not being negative, I'm just telling it the way it is. And I, I would tend to agree that the author is not being simply negative or a pessimist because of the multiple reminders in this text that despite the brevity and unpredictability of life, there is reason to have joy. The author reminds us of that several times. He's not saying, oh, just be happy, as if all is well in the world. He's very clear it's not. Neither is he saying, do whatever feels good, as if everything goes, because he's not. But he is talking us off the ledge. He's encouraging us. Do not despair. And he's helping us to see the good in the midst of it all. I believe the content of this section of the book of Ecclesiastes today can be summarized in five statements. And they are, life is hard and death is sure. Life is precious. Know your role. Enjoy the good gifts. And whatever you do, give it your all. So let's consider these five summary statements as we walk through the passage together this morning. The first of those statements is life is hard and death is sure. Now there are two issues that the writer cites which make life hard to live. The first of those is that sometimes things don't work like they should. Sometimes things don't work like they should. In chapter 9, verse 11, it says again, <clears throat> I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Now, when two runners are competing in a race, who should win? The, the faster runner should win the race, right? But sometimes it doesn't happen that way. Maybe the faster runner wasn't feeling well. Maybe they weren't properly hydrated. Maybe they weren't well-fueled. Maybe they got mentally distracted. Maybe they were hurt or sick, or there's any number of reasons why on occasion the fastest runner doesn't win the race. How many times have you watched a sporting event and you've witnessed your team lose to a lesser opponent and said, we should have had that game. If you're a Mizzou Tiger fan, probably more than not. We should have had that game, right? How, that, that is a common refrain. Or have you ever known someone who was really good at working on cars or they were really good at, at building stuff and, and they've always worked for someone else? And then they decide to launch out on their own and start their own business. How does it go? Sometimes really well. Sometimes fits like a glove. Sometimes it goes 
horribly wrong. And you're like, that doesn't make any sense. This person was really good at doing this. Why couldn't they be successful in a business where that's what you do? You do that. And the reason is because sometimes things don't work like they should. We have certain expectations about how life should work and how things should go. And when it doesn't, it's really frustrating and discouraging and it's hard to make sense of. Sometimes things don't work like they should. The better team doesn't win. The faster runner doesn't doesn't win. The stronger uh, army doesn't win. The person with more knowledge doesn't succeed. Sometimes they don't work like they should. The second reason life is hard is sometimes people don't get what they should. In chapter 8, verse 14, it says, there is a vanity that takes place on earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, this is also vanity. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why did my friend Brian die at such a young age? Though it, it often doesn't work this way, most people tend to live with this underlying assumption that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. That's why the idea of karma is so appealing to so many folks because it seems right. It seems fair. We would even say it seems just. But a lot of times that's not the way it works. Often the righteous suffer and the wicked seem to get rewarded. And then to compound it all, everybody dies regardless of how good or how bad they are. In chapter 9, verses 2 through 3, it says, It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. The same event happens to all. You see, it doesn't matter how fit we are or fast we are, how healthy we are or how good our genes are. No one's going to live forever. So things don't always work the way they should. People don't always get what they should, and everyone dies no matter what. Ain't life grand? But it is. The author doesn't want us to despair of life or to despise it because he also goes on to affirm the second statement, life is precious. In verse 4 of chapter 9, the writer says that even though everyone is going to die, even though the same fate awaits us all, the living have hope. Now, what is the hope that belongs to the living? It's life. It's opportunity. It's choice. Our story is still being written. If we're alive, then that means it's not over yet. And it doesn't matter who a person is. In verse 4, it says, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, a, a living lion would be better than a, than a living dog. A, a, a lion in the animal kingdom outranks a dog. 
But if the lion's dead, it's better to be a dog than a lion, right? It says to be of low status but alive is better than to be of high status but dead because life is precious and it's full of potential. We've all heard countless stories of individuals who overcame the odds and they endured adversity and with grit and determination and persistence, they accomplished great things. Recently, we watched a, a movie on Netflix based upon a true story. It was called The Swimmers. And it was about these young women from Syria, and this is early 2000s, and, and the conflict in Syria, and, uh, and these, these girls are swimmers, and they want to be Olympic swimmers, but like things are getting bombed around them, friends are dying, they're being you know, blown up in their homes, and so these girls... They decide if we can get to Germany, we can take refuge and then we can send for our family and we can like we can have a better life there. And so they the movie is about their journey to get from ravaged Syria to refuge in Germany. And they all get on this this boat and it's it's a, it's a racket. It's like a, a raft and it's, it's sinking, and it's overloaded with people, and, and the girls tie a rope around them, and they swim, and basically pull this boat across the Greek Sea. And there's a couple times where the young girls are attacked by men, and they're put in box trucks to try and, and get across borders, and like it is just the, the number of times that they are taken advantage by people and the number of times that people are oppressed in this movie and misled and, and it, is, it is just unfathomable. And at the end of the movie, they not only find refuge in Germany, but she gets to swim in the Olympics based upon a, a true story. And you could say when she's floating in the, in the Greek sea and it's like, you, you can't go back because people are dying there. And, and you don't know for sure what awaits you. Like, why don't you just disconnect the rope? And why don't you sink? Because life is precious. And that's why people fight for their life. And that's why stories like that are so inspirational. Because they're, they're examples of the truth, of the reality that life is to be fought for, that life is to be preserved, that despite very dark and difficult circumstances, as long as there's breath in our lungs, we have something valuable. And that's what the author is, is communicating to us, that in a world where things don't make sense, to be alive is significant. The third statement of truth is know your role. Verse 12 of chapter 9 depicts a bleak picture of the human condition. It says, For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man 
are snared at an evil time when suddenly, when it suddenly falls upon them. What do fish and birds have in common? That despite their speed or their skill or their cunning, they're just creatures. They're not invincible or immortal. They're weak. They have limitations. They have a certain vulnerability to them. That's us. We're like that too. Verse 15 of chapter 8 states that it's God who allots to us our days under the sun. The days that we have are ours because those are the number of days that God has given to us. Verse 1 of chapter 9 states that we and all our deeds are in the hand of God. Everything that we put our hands to, everything that we're involved with, everything that we touch is in the hand of God. I had a high school football coach who at the end of all of our summer practices, right before our very first football game, the night before, he gave us all a letter. He said, this is your paycheck. It was supposed to be really inspirational. Um, and uh, and it, it had a poem in it, and it was a poem by Ernest Hemingway. And it was, it was called Invictus. You may have seen this somewhere before. And the last two lines of the poem say, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, when Hemingway wrote this poem, what he's saying is, uh, I am not going to blame anyone else for my life. And likewise, I am not going to accept my station in life because that's what someone else has assigned to me. My life is going to be what it is because that's when I'm going to make it. I get to be the boss. I get to choose. I get to decide. And our coach was trying to tell us that even though you guys are small and slow, we don't have to have a losing season. You get to decide what kind of, what kind of team we are going to be. But our text today teaches something different than my coach and Ernest Hemingway. The meaning of our text is that though in this life we've been afforded great privilege, great opportunity, and great responsibility, it's ultimately God who is in control of our days and of our times. It's not chance what will come of each of our lives and when our end will come. It all falls underneath the providence of God. I mean, it sounds ridiculous to think of birds and a fish living as if they're God. We know that they're not God. They're, they're only creatures. But it's no less ridiculous when people forget that we too are creatures and we fail to acknowledge God's power and greatness and our complete and total dependence upon him. The fourth statement of truth in our text today is enjoy good gifts. Despite what could be viewed as some really negative and depressing statements in our text today, the writer actually says quite a bit 
about enjoying the good things that life affords, even stating that God approves of our enjoyment. In verse 15 of chapter 80 writes, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be joyful. In verse 7 of chapter 9, he writes, Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. And in the next verse, he writes about wearing white and putting oil on your head, which, which may not seem to make sense, but it makes a lot of sense if you think about Jesus' teaching on fasting, when Jesus says, when you fast, don't go about looking all gloomy and sad and hungry, but instead put oil on your face. Jesus talks about like, wear deodorant, wear cologne, look happy, don't, don't look like you're suffering. That's what the author is saying here. Put on, let your clothing always be white. Put on some clean clothes. Put oil on your face. Put on some, some body spray. Look positive. And in verse 9 it says, Enjoy life with the wife who you love. Do you see the gist of what the author is saying? God has given us so many good gifts for our enjoyment and in spite of the fact that life is hard we've been given food and drink and laughter and things worthy of celebrating and relationships and romance and marriage and sex and family and on and on and on and rather than being focused on what's out of our control or on what could be, whether good or bad, we should enjoy the good that God has set right before us. Despite all the sin and pain and brokenness in the world, life is still full of many good things because God is good. And all of those good things are mile markers or signposts that are meant to lead us to him. Which leads to the fifth statement of truth. Whatever you do, give it your all. Citing the fact that we won't live forever, that this life will end soon enough, the writer states in verse 9 of chapter 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Now currently, our family has two children in high school. And I figured this up this week. We will have at least two children in high school for the next seven years. And, and one of the things that I, I've, I've been aware of is trying to give our high schoolers counsel without trying to live vicariously through them. Uh, there are a number of things that I did in high school that I enjoyed. There are also things that I tried that I didn't enjoy. But then there are still things that I never tried. And you're only in high school once. So that means that you have this unique window of opportunity to try sports and activities and, and experiences before you have a mortgage and before you have debt and before you have all these other responsibilities and before you have all these other people who are dependent upon you. And you have this one window of opportunity to try these things. And you'll probably never get to go back 
and do like organized sports or whatever, learn to play a musical instrument, be a part of a group. There's, there's a lot of things that you may never have the same type of opportunity to do again. And although high school is definitely a unique season, there's a similar truth to all of life. You see, we only get one shot at it. And so the writer says, whatever you do, give it your all. Put it all out there. Don't leave anything in the tank. Give it your all while you can, because eventually you're going to die. Now, from this sample of Ecclesiastes, it would appear that the argument for enjoying good gifts, for giving it your all, and for valuing life is that this life is all there is. But the bigger picture afforded to us through the rest of the Bible gives us an even better perspective on why we should value our lives and be thankful and enjoy God's good gifts worshipfully and do our best in all that we do. And a perfect summary of that is found in Acts chapter 17, verse 31. A reason for all of that is because he, that's God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him, that's Jesus, from the dead. The best reason for a life well lived isn't that it's all going to end someday, but rather that someday we're all going to give an account, an explanation, and God is going to repay each one of us according to what we've done. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 2, 6 through 8, he, that's God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So if God raised Jesus from the dead as proof that he's going to judge all people someday for the lives that we've lived, and he's going to repay each one of us according to what we've done, then the best reason for a life well lived is standing before Jesus and giving an account. And there are two possible responses to that future reality. Either fear and great uncertainty or joy and unbelievable hope. Now, if it all hinges on me, on that day when I stand before Jesus, how good of a life did I really live? If it all hinges on me, how can I ever be sure that it was good enough. But if it all is in response, if the life that I live is all in response to something that's been done for me, someone who gave their life in my place, then it's a completely different story altogether. The best reason for a life well lived is that it's been transformed by the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus who paid for our sin at the cross 
and who alone was qualified to do that because of the perfect life that he lived for us. Is that true for you this morning? Now, in just a moment, we're going to get ready to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a visible reminder of this life that Jesus lived. Jesus came to earth and lived a sinless life so that he could go to the cross as our substitute. And in his body, he could die and take God's punishment for our sins. And this is something that only Christians can participate in because only Christians believe that Jesus paid for their sins. That's what makes us Christians is we see our need, we feel our guilt, and we turn to Jesus for our pardon and we surrender our lives to him. But for the Christian, there is something I want to go back and look at very quickly in our text. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 7. It says, I think it's on the screen. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved of what you do. Let's, let's turn that on Christ. For the believer coming to the table today to take the Lord's Supper, come and eat the bread with joy. And drink the cup with a glad heart, for God has already approved of you in Christ. What an amazing truth. Amen. 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 Would you stand and pray with me this morning? As our musicians and John and James come to serve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that in the midst of a world that is marred and broken and stained by sin, in the midst of lives that are heading towards physical death, there are still many good things to be enjoyed and appreciated and valued. And the very lives that we live are among those. But Father, we thank you that this life is not all that there is. We thank you that you are making all things new. We thank you that there is the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. The home of righteousness. Free from the presence of sin and suffering and sickness and death that belongs to all of those who've acknowledged their sins and turned to Christ for forgiveness and new life. And so, Father, we praise you today for the good news of the gospel, that death does not have the final word, that Jesus died and rose again, never to die again, that he promises to resurrect all those who look to him and who place their hope in him. Father, I pray that during this time as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, that we would remember that those seated at your right hand physically, that Christ is with us spiritually, that the bread and juice, the only bread and juice 
are given to us as signs by our Savior of his body and blood and his nearness with us. And we thank you, Father, that as our faith is a gift from you, that it is nourished and sustained by you so that you who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. And Father, we pray for any here today who has not yet embraced Christ for themselves, who has not seen their need and taken hold of him and surrendered their lives as evidenced in baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that today would be the day of their salvation, that today, seeing their need, they would not hold back any longer, but they would take hold of Jesus and say, I believe, have mercy on me, a sinner. Thank you, Lord, for your inestimable love. In Christ's name we pray, amen.